0: I mean, you know as well as I did, going to to music school. It's like you spend so much time trying to do this thing that's really hard, which is like playing improvised music and other stuff. That to then not do it, if if you never practice it again, and then you're asked to, that's really challenging. So I wanted to make sure I, I didn't stop doing that. But I'll, but again, just philosophically, it's like, man, I spend so many so much like blood, sweat, and tears, like trying to learn how to do this thing. And a lot of what I do here during the day is whole notes and power chords and strumming and acoustic, which is great. It's like they're like different muscles, you know, like if you didn't use the other muscle, it atrophies.
1: If you're just an ordinary person who listens to music, watches movies, watches TV, the name Andrew Sinowick might not be the first name you think of when you think of the guitar. But while you might not realize it, you've almost certainly heard Andrews playing. He's an in-demand LA Session guitarist, and in that role, he is in any given year probably one of the most recorded guitarists in the world. He's played on so many movies and TV shows that it's impossible to name them all. Movies like Disney's Frozen, Coco, Zootopia, Spider-Man, Far From Home, Ford v. Ferrari, The Mule, TV shows like The Simpsons, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Good Place, film trailers that you've definitely seen, that millions of people have seen. He's been a sideman with huge musical acts like The Who, Pink, Hyam, Nick Jonas, Donna Summer, Josh Groban, so many more. He's seriously played with pretty much everybody. Back in the early 2000s, he played with me. Andrew and I went to music school together at the University of Miami in Florida. We were both jazz studies majors. He was a year ahead of me, and he was always a guy that I admired both as a musician and as a student of music, and they're two kind of different things. He took his stuff really seriously from a young age. He was always a very dedicated student. He was always practicing, always improving. He was super good even when he was, you know, like 21, 22 years old. He was always just a very disciplined music student, and that isn't unheard of at a school like University of Miami, but it is kind of unusual, or at least it struck me as unusual and cool. So I've kept an eye on his career over the years as he's become a more and more successful, this kind of go-to LA session guitarist. And I recently thought, you know what, I should ask Andrew to come on Strong Songs and talk about his work. He's one of those musicians that I find so fascinating that I really want to highlight on this show. He's constantly working, constantly recording, constantly playing, but his work is largely in the background. You might have heard him, but even on those soundtracks that I Listed, he might not have been the guitarist that you heard on a given tune, there are so many musicians involved in making a big Hollywood soundtrack or TV show soundtrack that he's just one part of that machine and that's his job and I think that's a really interesting job. In addition to all of that professional work Andrew's also putting out some great records of original music under his own name, you're currently hearing a track from his 2019 album Second Story and it's so impressive to me that he can find the time to do that, he's so productive musically as his day job and then he also finds time to be creative and put out his own stuff which I just think is very admirable and cool. So a couple of weeks ago, he and I hopped on Zoom, and we had the chat that you're about to listen to. We talked about the work of a studio guitarist, how he got into the business, his approach to guitar tone and recording, the design and development of his incredible home studio, which is really cool. There's a a video down in the show notes you can watch where you can get kind of a sense of it, but it's a really great home studio. Also, some lessons he's learned in 20 years on the job, and of course, why he makes such a point of taking the time to put out his own music in addition to everything else that he does. It was a really fun chat, and I hope that you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Andrew Sinowick, welcome to Strong Songs. All right. Thanks for having me. Oh man, I'm I'm so happy to have you here. You're this very interesting kind of musician. You're kind of the guy behind the guy. Like you're you're in everything. You're on so many records. You're in so many movies. You're a person that so many people have heard. And they might not know your name. They might not know that it was the same person playing all these different stringed instruments on so many, on so many different recordings. So I guess my first question for you is what Like, what is an important trait or what are some important traits for people with this kind of job, like for your kind of musician?
0: Well, at the risk of, you know, saying things that you hear probably a thousand other places, um, people skills is kind of the number one. Mm. So being easy to get along with. um, My job being a guitarist is a little bit different in that um, on any given day, you know, you're wearing... A different hat maybe you know 10 different hats on the same day
1: mm. like what are some hats that
0: you wear well i was thinking it's the kind of thing where you need to um you need to be able to show up and put your heart and soul into this solo and have somebody go i hated that that was terrible why would you play that that's not what we wanted <laughs> and you kind of have to go okay cool i tried to zig and now i need to zag <laughs> it's a weird balance because you have to care enough to do a good job and and you know, put that heart and soul into it, but you have to be able to go, it's not my name on the record. So I I have to serve what they're asking for.
1: Right. Do you find that kind of frees you up in some ways creatively to just do whatever, to just try totally ridiculous things that you maybe even don't think sound good or didn't? Exactly.
0: It really does free you up. And one of the things that I've found, and again, this is something I've heard other people say, but it's like, if somebody suggests an idea that you think is terrible and not going to work, it's so much better and quicker and smoother to just go, yeah, let's try it. And half the time, it works mm-hmm. and sounds great. And if it doesn't work, they'll hear likely, hopefully, <laughs> that it didn't work. Right, hopefully. And that, it's kind of like a smoother way of approaching the thing rather than like, no, man, that's not going to work, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I think
1: I think when I was in high school, you know Jim Snydero, that saxophonist? Sure. He came and visited my high school and he gave this clinic... And I remember, I mean, I was 16 and didn't know anything about being a professional musician. And he's this like New York sax guy. And I remember he gave the advice of, you know, yeah, you got to be good. You got to be able to read. You got to be able to to do the thing. But really, you've just got to be a good hang. He's like, because most of the gig is just sitting around with people telling stories and like talking about movies and stuff. Do you find that that's true in the studio as well?
0: Yeah, it's funny because you say if you say, oh, you have to be a good hang, I think people think that means you have to be a big personality and Mm. be like the life of the party. (laughs) And there's already probably somebody else in the room that is that role, that's fulfilling that role and is is Mm -hmm. acting that way. I try and, almost fill in, you know, as necessary. Mm, you're like a chameleon, like a social chameleon. Well, it's, that's part of the gig, really. That's, that's kind of like, yeah, you know, getting to your question, you know, it's a good skill to have. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think for me, some of the harder dates are when I have to be that guy. When I look around the room, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm the extrovert
1: here. This never quite struck me as your personality. You're a very supportive musician. Yeah. So how does it work, like, mechanically? You have a home studio. You do stuff at home now. I'm guessing that wasn't always the case, and you would travel around. But talk me through it, just sort of how it would work if somebody hired you to play guitar on just a straight-ahead rock album.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, they would... Probably come word of mouth, you know, recommendation. And they would say, Mm -hmm. I've got this record. It kind of sounds like a cross between this and that. And, you know, and we'd find a time. And I prefer to, I mean, actually my number one preference would be to go to a quote unquote real studio and track live Mm -hmm. with other musicians. Because it's like you hear it come together all at once and everybody's involved and people are high fiving and everyone's invested in making decisions and feeling good about it right you know and if a part needs to change or something like that you work on it in the in the moment versus a lot of the time i get sent things and i'm i'm going wait in the second bar of the course you know the piano plays an e but the bass player's playing a g did they mean g major or e minor (laughs) and then it's like now i spend half my energy figuring out what to play that won't clash Because the person's in a different time zone and I can't even call them and ask them, what did you mean here? Do you usually get charts for
1: things or do you sometimes just get recordings and you kind of have to figure it out?
0: Rarely get charts. I mean, if it's a record, probably not. Yeah. It's just like, here's the recording. I don't even get charts for for more like um, kind of TV type cues where it's like modulating all over the place and it's like, just add stuff. Really?
1: So So you just spend a lot of time. Do you make charts of your own like to to kind of have a... A guide?
0: It depends. A lot of times I will just really like chicken scratch like real fast mm-hmm. to help me it's especially like if I'm gonna be layering things, you know, it just if I take five minutes and make a chart, it makes the whole thing go smoother. But I laugh like people go, what well, you know, what about reading music? Is that important? And I go, yeah, but reading WAV files is like the most important thing now.
1: <laughs> right. Reading a MIDI track or something is yeah. is even more important. That's funny. It sounds like you, so you work with a whole, like the whole gamut from in the room with a band and like a producer in the booth giving you feedback to literally alone in a different time zone from the person who sent you what you're recording to with no guidance at all. And you're just exactly. figuring it out. Man, how do you find the the sort of creativity that you need to do it on that latter end of the scale when it's just you and you have to just invent a whole guitar part for somebody.
0: <laughs> this is kind of crazy, but <laughs> and maybe they'll have me committed now. But <laughs> I, I sort of picture like friends in the room and what they would say, like that makes sense. Oh, I'll buy that or like mm-hmm. that, oh you know what we need you know we need trick number seven here. This works every time. <laughs> I mean literally. I kind of have to psych myself up sometimes because that's kind of the hardest part of working alone is that you have to, you have to self-produce, which that's fine. That's what I've been learning to do, you know, for the last 20 years or whatever. But it gets tiring when, especially like the last two years, I've been doing mostly that. Sure. And, you know, you have to just keep coming back to this well and, and finding renewed energy to like, Okay, here's another cue. <laughs> like, right. Here's right. another
1: comedy cue. Do you have? I mean, I'm I'm picturing you now with like standee cutouts of with your friends' faces taped onto them, and they're like sitting <laughs> exactly, around your yeah. studio and watching you. But do you have people that you go to
0: just to get some kind of feedback from somebody? I do. I mean, it's rare that I, if I think I knocked this out of the park, and then it comes back, they weren't super happy. Mm-hmm. That's when I'll often like, hey can I send you something and tell me they were asking for X and I thought I delivered X. Am I wrong? Or is that not, you know, whatever the thing mm-hmm. was. Is that like you're looking
1: just for them to tell you you're not crazy and that the thing you made doesn't suck? Or are you looking for ideas <laughs> for, for
0: how you can maybe tweak the thing and give the client more what they want? <laughs> I'm probably just looking for validation, you know, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but they're like, no, dude, this is great. They're, they're tripping. that's <laughs> That's funny. I I will say that there's kind of these universal references that I didn't understand really existed maybe 20 years ago. Mm. That over the course of just working and hearing somebody say, "Oh, I needed to be warm sound or whatever," you know, mm-hmm. some nebulous word or or like a particular musical reference, where I go, "Okay, I really never checked out that artist. I'm gonna actually do myself a favor and educate myself here and go down the rabbit hole of." you know. Right, right. Yeah, with the artists, that makes sense. If they're just like, can
1: you get a sort of Dave Fizinski kind of a sound? And then you're like, okay, I can actually look into what that means. Those words you're talking about, I think that's actually really interesting. I'd be curious to know what you think someone means. Warm is a good example, actually. When someone says they want your sound to be warmer, what do you think they're really saying?
0: Quieter, more legato, darker. You think it's like an EQ thing, maybe, or is it? Is it not that specific? Yeah, if I'm playing an electric guitar, maybe it's a neck pickup thing. Maybe mm-hmm. play with your fingers. And the other thing that's always keeps me on my toes is that you know everybody has kind of their own vernacular, right? And especially if you're just meeting somebody, it's almost like okay, I just walked into the room and I have to learn their language within the next ten minutes, so I can figure out you know what they mean when they say this. What is it that they mean?
1: Right. I would think if, you know, it's like crunchy is another one. Can you get a little more crunch on it? And that can mean yeah. so many things, especially with guitar. You need to establish that rapport with someone. You need to kind of get the feedback from them where if you can be sitting there playing and they say, well, make it crunchy. And you're like, okay, well, like this. And you, whatever, you know, put it on the on the bridge pickup. And they're like, no, not like that. Like, like put more drive on it or something. You do that. Like, that's a good way to learn what
0: they mean. Exactly. And a lot of times now for new people, I mean, it depends on if it can happen and, and the logistics and everything. But I almost I really try and, and get somebody to at least uh, be there, if they can't be in the room, be there virtually for the first half an hour to get me started on right. something if I've never worked for them before. I would think that would be really hard. Just a lot of wasted work if you're working without, yeah. They, that's exactly right. And I try and explain to them like, L- listen, help me help you, you know. This is ultimately, we're all gonna be happier. You're gonna get something um, that, that it is it's exactly what you're looking for, you know, and quicker. Do you ever
1: find yourself holding back with the amount of creativity or work that you put into something when it's just kind of a, a session gig, like you're being a hired gun?
0: Yeah. And I mean, that can be hard too, but it gets back to that thing of you need to care. And when I first moved to LA and was playing on like sessions, I, I kind of had this idea like, no, if I just do that, 99th overdub (laughs) that's the thing that's gonna make the make it a success and and I had to actually learn that like like take yes for an answer when they're happy they like it (laughs) yeah yeah that makes sense and that that can be hard because again it's this weird like you have to care enough but again you know you, in the end, their happiness is what you're shooting for. So. Right,
1: right. You don't have that level of ownership where you need to, you know, you need to feel that way about what you've right. reported.
0: So it's kind of a delicate balance. It's a little
1: bit of a tightrope walk. Right. I guess it's always just a little bit different. You mentioned uh, when you first started in LA. How did you get started in LA? What was that process like?
0: Uh, <laughs> I packed all my stuff into uh, my Honda Civic and. <laughs> yeah. Made it to Alabama, and my muffler fell off. Oh, man, really? <laughs> <laughs> Miami wouldn't let you go. Yeah, right? And no, I mean, I think it was kind of before, well, it was definitely before social media. So, yeah. kind of the old school, pounding the pavement. I made little demo CDs, nice. if you can believe that, that had my info and and business cards. And and I can totally believe that. You're moving to... a place where everybody makes hats and saying you want to be a hat maker too you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and hanging out a shingle
1: what was the was there sort of a first gig or a first connection a first studio you started working in that was kind of you felt like you had your foot in the door and you were making it happen
0: yeah there was uh, there was an alum actually of of miami who had um he was out here working he was doing a lot of movie trailers and at the time the custom movie trailer um was like a really big thing what do you mean by that so let's see. Yeah, this is because this is before streaming. So everybody yeah. just had to go to the theater and you would see these, you know, there's like 20 minutes of previews before you, your movie starts. Specifically, the, the session I did was for Ocean's 12, maybe. It wasn't the first one. No, that's the second one. So it's probably that one. That... Yeah. And, and so the job was, okay, there's this two minute movie trailer and in the beginning it starts and it's orchestral so we don't need you there but then they tempted it up and te- that means they they took a temporary placeholder um piece of music which is often something really well known right. that would cost you know four hundred thousand dollars to use what they would call a needle drop so three seconds of stairway to heaven is mm-hmm. like unaffordable for a movie trailer (laughs) but what they could do is write something that sounds similar gets the vibe but not going to get anybody sued so i think in this case it was like a james brown track or something like that so they just needed like a little funky rhythm guitar thing for like seven bars you know not much Mm -hmm. and then at the very end there was a i think it cut back to that track but then there was a solo or something like that that's uh that was the the gig Hmm. um i went over to um like a really nice home studio and I'm sure we spent like way too much time because that's, we had the budget. And I mean, it's funny that that world is, um, people obsess over little details, you know, okay, the bend, should it be, is it too quick? Is it, should it be slower? Well, give me, you know, exactly what you were saying. Give me one with more drive. Give me one, Right, you know, let's have every option. Give me a fall. Is it
1: because it's seven seconds of music and like,
0: as a result, you're, you know, you're fixating on every single second? It's Well, that and it's the budget. It's the amount of money that's at stake Mm -hmm. and everybody's everybody's worried, you know, all the time about stuff like that. Well, I know like when I'm watching a film trailer, like if the bend isn't
1: just right, I'm not going to go see that movie. I'm like, no, this is trash. (laughs) Obviously, the guitar player totally phoned this in. Yeah. So were you doing a lot of trailer work sort of at first and then you got more into recording like, you know, records and stuff?
0: Yeah. So it's funny, people tend to get pigeonholed and um, that was kind of what he was doing at the time who was this from miami by the way uh vegar margayason oh okay. he's icelandic yeah, yeah yeah, great dude and really helped me out because you know we went and, and did the whole la thing where we had lunch and uh talked about miami and then um and i played him my my demo cd you yeah. know which so i specifically had made this thing where it was like 10 seconds of you know typical power chord rock guitar playing and then quick fade out quick fade into like bebop jazz 10 seconds oh man which is like ridiculous to even put on anything but being a music student i'm sure i put that on there quick fade out fade into classical guitar fade out fade into you know eddie van halen tapping stuff oh man just to like really hit people over the head with like look like this is what i can
1: do you know? right i can kind of do all the things do you still have yeah. that recording <laughs> uh,
0: for the purposes of this discussion. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, only if you'd want to share it, but I would totally put I it under this if, do. You, if you had it, I think. I mean, dude, I remember how you sounded 20 years ago. You sounded pretty good. I'm sure it's still pretty impressive, though I'm sure you, you might not feel that
0: way. Uh, committed to constant improvement. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. Do
1: you find time to practice?
0: I still do. And it's Mostly just a mental thing, like knowing like hey i I went and I went upstairs and sat there, you know before I showed up and i I, I hate that feeling of like the first time I pick up the guitar is there's forty people waiting, and oh geez, like yeah. you know scoring mm-hmm. stage, and you can hear a pen drop, and do I even play better having practiced for a half an hour before that, maybe maybe not, but mentally, I feel a lot better that makes myself. sense. What are you working on right now <laughs> maybe you might love this i do you did you ever be in a sax player did you ever do the um i think it's, it's a french saxophonist guy lacour oh my god the guy lacour book i always called it
1: guy lacour but yes i've played through those where it's like one like the diminished scale for like one whole totally ludicrous <laughs> yeah. thing yeah i have learned a few yeah, exactly. of those they're
0: really hip they're yeah they're really hard too like cuz it just makes you do they're stuff. hard yeah they're hard on sax man <laughs> yeah
1: so you've just been working through that book
0: yeah towards the end of last year i bought i've always been way into bach and that was my normal kind of morning warm-up thing and sometimes like classical guitar pieces but a lot of times i would just get these bach things that were like you know solo violin and i but i would play them like electric guitar with distortion sure you know like Wei or whatever (laughs) yeah uh, but because that's actually really hard to do to play cleanly with a lot of game, you know? Mm, yeah, no, sure. So like maybe one, I, I like to practice in the morning. So like one morning I'd, I'd play with the ingv tone and the next morning just a different guitar with just totally clean. Nice. Let's
1: talk a little bit about guitar tone. I'm sure. curious. So I'm a mediocre guitarist. I've been playing for a while now and it's been fun. I've like learned every instrument except for saxophones since school, which has <laughs> been a fun process, you know. It's just they're all they're all different in their own ways and um teach me something new about music. And I've gotten more and more interested in guitar tone, even though you know, I have I have so much to learn and it, so much about it continues to elude me. But just given that you have this studio with a million guitars and so many different tone options, fundamentally, what is an important thing for a good guitar tone and how do you
0: try to get it? Well, the number one thing is to have a concept of what you want to sound like. Mm. Whether, if it's West Montgomery, can you, you know, you go, okay, I want to sound like that. Taking the guitar even out of the equation, like, let's say you're playing a, a cheap solid-body guitar. Mm-hmm. You can still get pretty darn close to that. Right. So then it becomes, okay, well, let's dissect a little bit. Well, obviously, we know he plays with his thumb, but it's actually pretty bright in terms of jazz guitar tones. Yeah. Then it kind of turns into that, like, imitation thing where you go, well, let me let put on his record, find a little lick... And then play it back. Well, why does mine sound like that? If not, why not? And then Mm -hmm. go down that rabbit hole until you go, oh, the tone on the guitar needs to be set here. That's a little closer. And then if I pick here, that's a little closer. And then what am I doing with my left hand? Oh, if I pull off here, okay, I'm kind of in the ballpark now. And then it's you sort of like put that in the mental, you know, filing cabinet.
1: so Wes is a kind of or that's a good first example because he's very straightforward tonally in a way. I mean it's just kind of a guitar into an amp. When you're looking at someone with a more complicated tone, people write in and ask me about the edge all the time. Yeah. And I don't really know. I mean I've I know like there's whole gear pages that explain the
0: crazy rack units that that guy plays through, but at the same time Well, here's the other thing. So much of it is contextual. Yeah. So like if you have that kind of cool P-bass sound underneath and Larry Mullen's playing drums behind you and it's going like D G D you know mm-hmm. like every U2 song mm-hmm. and then you put on a dotted eighth delay and play like up high on the neck like a fifth yeah it's you're you're like 90% there <laughs> you're, you're honestly. basically the edge at that point <laughs> and the rest of it is like yeah that he uses that pick and it's this it's the Korg delay into the Vox AC30 and What I'm trying to say is, if somebody said, "Hey, give me an edge part," I could play a Les Paul into a Marshall with that delay sound, which is just a dotted eighth. I mean, yeah, and sometimes it's plus a quarter note or an eighth note, but in general, that's the the quote unquote the edge thing. Right. It's way deeper than that, sure. But for the purposes of this discussion, somebody says, "Hey, give me an edge thing." I could probably get that with almost any guitar into any amp played with a little bit of gain and that delay sound so that raises the question why have a whole bunch of guitars (laughs) well you know honestly (laughs) half of it is hey give me slash cool i got a les paul right i can straight up do the exact sound. yeah yeah Yeah. that makes sense and i was also going to say that's something i run into sometimes (laughs) people go I'll do these, like, orchestral things, and Mm -hmm. then they'll go, yeah, but we need it to sound like Metallica, like the Black Album. (laughs) you know, and they're like, oh, just play, here, play this one power chord part. And, it doesn't quite sound. It's like, yeah, nothing else about this sounds like the Black Album. (laughs) Right, I can't just pivot to that sound. The groove is not the same. There's no drums. (laughs) You know, like... Those guitars were at least quadrupled mm-hmm. and that's something I do occasionally run into and then it turns into almost a little bit of like an education thing where you have to say, mm. hey, give me one sec, let me play two bars, okay, And I'm going to pan that to the left and I'm going to double it and pan the new one right. to the right, hey, check out how much bigger that sounds now, are we in- more in the ballpark, okay, relax, we're going to get there. It takes more than one guitar pass to (laughs) give you the blackout. This
1: is something I've learned, especially in trying to recreate various tracks for Strong Songs, actually, which I did an episode on a Mastodon song, and so I was like, well, I'm going to try to recreate this. The bass is such a big part of the sound of a rock band, and it's a huge part of it. And you really, like, people will think that the guitars on a you know on a given rock track sound really deep and huge but that's totally just because there's a great sounding bass underneath them like tying the whole thing together i could imagine how that might lead to a misconception when people are asking you to provide that sound and you're like well i can't do it by myself i don't have a bass player here." yeah or it's like give me a day because i gotta you know i gotta layer this stuff right right i need to i need to layer it a little bit more here's a question for you here's a guitar conundrum you can build a pedal board with four pedals
0: on it. What's it going to be? Does a volume pedal count? No. Okay, great. So I need a volume pedal. Um, and honestly, it doesn't even really matter. I would put some type of tube screamer-y thing, that level of like light overdrive. Okay. I'd put some type of heavy overdrive thing. Mm-hmm. I would put a delay. What am I up to? I, I I only have one more. That's three. You only have one more.
1: You pick two. You pick two drive
0: pedals. So just say it. Yeah. No, I know. Um, well, if I choose a Line Six Helix, then mm. can that no, be yeah, one you of can. my? We can like, pick like a multi-effects pedal. <laughs> it's got to be something specific. Okay. Uh, and then maybe a tremolo pedal. That's mm. still a very legal effect. Yes, that's allowed. Nice. All right. Yeah. What is
1: a good? What's your? I don't want to say your favorite, but what is a a good go-to non-standard
0: tuning that you really enjoy? Oh wow. Um, I just put a guitar in D tuning, so mm-hmm. like standard tuning but down a whole step.
1: Yeah, that Mastodon tune, "Blood and Thunder." That just did an episode on that is in in D tuning. But yeah, D tuning is pretty cool. Um, have you ever played much? Have you played much Jeff Buckley? Like many of his tunes
0: back in the day? I, yeah, I was into that Grace album that a lot of people were. He has some pretty weird tuning on some of his songs. Trying
1: to learn, songs. As, a, as someone who's not very good at guitar and it struggles enough with standard tuning, trying to learn how to play um, Last Goodbye, I was, it was a very complicated experience. It was
0: mostly geometric and not very harmonic. Well, and for me, you know, a lot of the times, I most of what I do is like, hey, here's this thing. You got to figure something out. Ready, go. Okay, got it, you know. Right. So the altered tuning thing can be... Like I need to know that I can intelligently go to this fret and produce this effect, right and when you start throwing in altered <laughs> tunings the the really great part is you, you never know what's going to happen, right but a lot of the time that's a you know not a good thing It's less useful in a studio I need to know I need to have like a repeatable thing that the one thing I will do is a lot of times people have these parts where it's like a lot of, you know like written not by someone who plays guitar and they'll go, it's like a repeating ostinato thing, and they'll go, well, I I need these two things to ring, but then this third note, like, changes, and I'm like, well, hold on, let me, Mm -hmm. I can do this, I can do, if it works out, and in that setting, I'll just tune the, the wild string to whatever I need it to be to
1: Right. Just for
0: that one specific yeah. thing so that you can yeah. use it that way. Yeah. So I mean and that's the kind of thing here, of course, if I'm working alone at home, I can go down that rabbit hole and figure and make stuff that's totally unplayable Right. playable. Right. Because you're not on the clock. You're not no one's paying for yeah. studio time. But even there there are ways to kind of do you know, like if you tune the low string down. If the if there's something in D a lot of times I will I'll do a uh, mm-hmm. drop tuning. Yes, a drop D tuning, a drop D tuning. <laughs>
1: With orchestrators in general, right? Composers,
0: orchestrators, yeah. Yeah.
1: What's the difference? Like, as a musician who comes in, you probably have a good perspective on this. I think this is something that a fair number of listeners won't be totally familiar with. Just the difference between an orchestrator and, like, a film composer and arranger. How do those different roles work?
0: Yeah, well, the composer writes themes, and he's looking at or she's looking at everything from a very general sense. Mm-hmm. Who is this character? What's the sound of this character? And then they get to the nuts and bolts of okay, what is the melody? What instrument captures, you know, this melody and brings out the the sound of this personality mm-hmm. of the character. But they might be too busy to to write down, okay, now what's the second violin going to play? <laughs> right. So they'll kind of sketch it up and I mean, obviously different for Everybody. Yes, this is right. Not true of everybody. But they'll take a theme, or and it it could be pretty specific. But then they'll give it to like an orchestrator, who then breaks it down into the super fine detail, nuts and bolts of what's the second bassoon going to play? You know, mm-hmm. what kind of percussion do we need? How many do we need? How many brass? What's a good balance for this? Oh, should you know? I mean, that's beyond my pay grade. Sure. I mean, I studied some of that in college, but you sort of have to to just do that and only that to really understand it. Mm-hmm. I did a, a thing today here at Name Drop. I did a session for the show American Dad this morning. Oh, yeah, all right. Um, and the composer is Joel McNeely, who's actually also a U.M. alum. Yeah, that's right. And he, I mean, dude, he his writing is so ridiculous. It's so amazing. Yeah. You know, could I try and do that if I had a week, maybe, But he probably did it in a half an hour and, you know, wrote this cue that sounded like Bernard Herman. I mean, and it's just so nailed and so perfect. And and they know, like, oh, the trumpet sounds good in this register, but not this register. Mm -hmm. Clarinet can play this in this key, but it's harder in this key because there's a break on the instrument. You know, all that kind of stuff. They just have, like, this Rolodex and they know where the problems are and how to address them and how to fix them. It's funny how you you just start to specialize over the years and
1: develop yeah. that kind of really deeply ingrained knowledge where I'm sure you know someone could say the same thing of you when you're talking about guitar tones, how you could just walk in and give someone any possible guitar tone. And that's something that you developed just over the course of years and years doing it. I'm sort of curious, because you and I both went to school together and we both attended, I think, like a really good program where we learned a lot of stuff about jazz and about music and harmony. What are some things that you learned after school? You know, what was that learning process like compared to the things that you learned in school?
0: Well, kind of just getting back to the personality thing, which mm-hmm. it's kind of unteachable. You sort of have to do it wrong and then try and do it right the next time. But another like real world thing, when I first moved here, I would do like all these auditions for these um, like pop, bands or or whatever, like, sure, you know, there's some new artist on Hollywood records and they're gonna, they need to do a promo tour, so we have to put a band together that looks young and hip Right, and, right. <laughs> and I can remember one time I showed up and I, okay, go ahead, you know, they're ready for you. So I go in, I set up my pedal board and I plug in. out, let me get my sound. And I played like <laughs> like a B-flat major seven chord <laughs> to test the guitar, <laughs> which is like, there's nothing... <laughs> What's the big deal? But I uh-huh. saw like all the heads turn, like, uh oh.
1: Like, we got a jazz guy in our hands. <laughs> yeah. And I,
0: but then I proceeded to play the part, you know, like not like solo all over the place, just play the part on the record. Really simple. You're like, no sevenths. No, no, no. <laughs> but like, you had already, you, you already lost at that point. Wow. That's really funny.
1: What's the lesson from that then?
0: <sighs> like, know the room, you know? Hmm. Know the
1: room. Um, you so you work in your own home studio now. I see we have a we have a furry friend walking around in there. Oh, he's shaking off! <laughs> I can't get my dog to come into my studio, but it's probably for the best. Um, so, what was the process like? So, I watched this video that you've posted where you talk some about mm-hmm. designing it and putting it together. Yeah. Um, what was that process like? How did you how did you approach building your own studio?
0: Uh, I cried a lot, and then I <laughs> cried some more. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, it kind of became apparent that if i wanted to do the kind of work that i'm doing i needed a place that was going to i mean number one allow me to work all hours the day or night and not disturb anyone but even more importantly you know be able to record really quiet acoustic guitar stuff and not have helicopters getting in right right i mean yeah there's just so much like air is it air pollution noise well both i guess there's air pollution and there is also pollution. a lot of air pollution <laughs> down there that's true in l.a. So it kind of became apparent like okay, it was the right time to kind of like take this risk and and uh, build a studio and I talked to a few different contractors and a million people who had done it before me and got a, a plan together and made it happen.
1: Is it the kind of thing where you're it's pretty much finalized or are you constantly tweaking it and and adjusting it and, and adding? To I
0: assumed it? that I would always be tweaking it, but honestly. It was the kind of thing where once I had it i, I was luckily I was so busy working that <laughs> I got the room and it, it made it really quiet, and then it was like, all right, we just kind of stopped the bleeding for a while right and like I can work here and then I had um actually Matt del Vecchio. oh yeah, sure shout out to Matt delvecchio, yeah, yeah, another fine U m alum yeah, it's all about the Miami network, yeah, he's out here doing amazing things nice. he came uh came and helped me um initially i i had hired uh, george Augsburger, who's like this renowned acoustician yeah. he helped me he kind of came out he took some measurements he had, like some actual acoustic measurements like okay ups truck went by at and it gave you 40 hertz at this oh, nice. db level yeah, yeah. so and then a plane flew over and then you know, he like basically just kind of sat in his car with a microphone out the window for like hmm. an hour yeah. on a busy weekday. Oh, so this is like not within the studio, but out in your neighborhood, just getting exactly. a sense of the sound. Oh, that's cool. Just kind of getting a sense of like, how how nuts do we need to go here? Right. And he put a plan together and I did all of the structural floating floor, drop ceiling, double wall. I did all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then he also did, like, the acoustic treatment side of things. And, and if this is getting too, like, nerdy, we No, can it's just... fine.
1: Let's slow down for a second. So, are you... Is yeah. this, like, an ADU, like, a freestanding thing that you're in with, with four walls?
0: No. So, it's actually... It's over the garage. Okay. Um, and it's technically, on paper, it's a master bedroom. But okay. it, the inspector came to sign off, like, to, okay, you're 100% good to go. And he goes, uh, so, are you recording yet? And I was like, uh, <laughs> uh, and I wasn't, I was kind of like, I'm not sure how to answer this. That's he, funny. And he goes, he goes, it's all right. I, I used to build studios before I did this. Yeah, that seems
1: more likely like. He's like, it's fine. You
0: did everything to code. There's no problem. So you
1: say a floating floor and isolating. So you're, you're talking about sound isolating the room so that the room
0: itself is kind of soundproof.
1: Exactly. What are those, what are those processes?
0: So, I mean, the best way to do it is, is to do uh, a room within a room. So, right. I mean, obviously, certain things have to touch for it to to stand up. But you want to <laughs> try and decouple the inner walls. So, like, if you were to walk in here, when you walk through the doorway, if you look to the left in the door frame, you would see, oh yeah, sure enough, here's one set of two by fours. Right. There's a little gap, and here's another set of two by fours. Got it. And it's kind of like that all the way around. So then you had to tune the room, which means exactly controlling reflection
1: and bounce. This is like yeah. putting paneling on the walls and stuff like that. Exactly.
0: And so that's where, you know, I'm not mixing or mastering records for a living. Right. I just need it to be not, you know, somewhat translate, somewhat in the ballpark. Right. And that's where I had Matt Del Vecchio come in. And he kind of did something a, a lot more functional for me, which is um, there's these kind of uh, diffusers. No, they're absorb. It's like absorptive material mm-hmm. on three walls but then there's guitars hanging kind of in front of them so it's not super dead the sound kind of bounces off the guitars so it's functional because I can you know there's all the guitars there easily to grab but it's also breaking up the sound and doing all those kind of wonderful things for it and then behind that there's absorption which helps to deaden the sound when you record electric do you typically mic an amplifier or do you go direct I do I mic an amp and so I'm actually over the garage, and what I do is I have um, a bunch of amplifier heads, so that's the stuff that... That's you your cabs kind of what through. actually gives it the tone and makes it loud, Right. but it doesn't actually kind of... It's like a... It shoots uh, like a fire hose. It, it <laughs> pumps it down into a speaker where it actually comes out. Right. That speaker is the loud thing. That's down in the garage um, in a box under guitar cases and blankets and a million other things.
1: Right. So, and then you can turn it up as loud
0: as you want and not
1: deafen yourself also, which is pretty nice,
0: I would imagine. So that gets mic'd up. And the benefit of that is up here, when I'm listening through the studio monitors, I'm hearing what the microphone is hearing. Man, that's pretty nice. Do you just leave,
1: you just leave the, it's just kind of one cab that's down there and is mic'd or do you switch cabs depending on what you're doing?
0: One cab, two mics. I, I bought a second cab, like, Six years ago, (laughs) it's still not hooked up. That's funny. I just, it's really hard to find the downtime to allow not only for the actual, for the setup that I know is going to need to happen, but then the inevitable, wait, why, why is this different now? Why doesn't this work? Where's that buzz coming
1: from? One well, that you have to go up and down the stairs every time you want to change something, which I would imagine is just sort of a pain.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, my idea was to just have another cab with a totally different-sounding speaker-microphone yeah. combination. What's, what's the cab that you're currently using? It's a Rivera Silent Sister cabinet, and it's got a Celestion speaker. So just one speaker, like a 12-inch? Mm-hmm. One speaker, there's two mics, and then... Again, we're getting super in the weeds here, but no man, do it. It's fine. I use an API mic preamp, which I love the sound of API yeah. gear, and it actually has a built in summing mixer. So that means it, it allows me to combine up to four different signals and send them out of really only one channel if I need nice. it. Nice. So it's just a single
1: channel, so you can kind of,
0: yeah, often two. So, right. so usually, what I do is I blend those two mics. Like if it's just um, like a lot of times getting back to our power chord part, I would blend the two mics about 50-50 mm-hmm. into one channel, pan that to one side, and then pretty much same thing on the other side. Nice. Um, a lot of people like to change the double. I personally find that I really like the sound of just the same thing played a second time makes it somehow more three-dimensional, whereas if I change it too much on the double, it almost loses some of that depends on the arrangement so when you say change the double you mean if you've recorded a second guitar part
1: play it a little bit different the second time so that it fattens it up which is yeah a common a common thing
0: or i just try and play it the same and it, right. it's inherently different enough right That most people think you would right yeah. you would
1: you would purposefully do it but actually <laughs> yes. you just are never going to perfectly recreate exactly something. yeah so you also of course you make your own music and i'm curious what that's like for you just having a creative outlet where you're like recording your own stuff. Your recent record, man, it's so it's so killer. Russ Kleiner, do you remember Russ Kleiner from school? He was like, yeah, of course. He was like, yeah. dude, Cinemark has a new album out. You got to listen to it. And of course, it's oh, awesome, t- totally amazing. So yeah, we were passing it around with some of our friends yeah. and listening to Thank it. You. I mean, it's great stuff. It's really great playing. What do you get out of that? Like, what's, what are you going for when you're doing your own thing after spending so much time being so flexible for, for other people?
0: Well, mostly it's such a good financial, you know, it's, it's such a financial, <laughs> right, right, I, I can't right. not do it. Yeah, it pays your mortgage, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know that there are people who do this for a living. I've been here almost 20 years yeah. playing guitar for other people. And i know I know that there are people that, like, for example, leave their guitar in the garage and they don't have a guitar in their home. they don't touch the guitar at home mm, it's a job it's like that's work yeah yeah and i i actually I understand that sure. and conversely, I really want to make sure that is not me hmm. so doing that record and playing gigs and writing my own music is a way to prevent that.
1: I would think it also just gives you an opportunity to interact with other musicians and, like, be creative of, with people, yeah, like, in an actual space, which you were saying, yeah. I mean, even in, in your
0: studio work, sometimes you get to do, but you don't always get to do. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, you know as well as I did, go, going going to, to music school, it's like you spend so much time trying to do this thing that's really hard, which is, like, playing improvised music and yeah. other stuff, that to then... Not do it <laughs> if if you never practice it again, and then you're asked to. That's really challenging. So I wanted to make sure I I didn't stop doing that. Right. But all but again, just philosophically, it's like, man, I spend so many so much like blood, sweat, and tears like trying to learn how to do this thing. And a lot of what I do here during the day is whole notes and power chords and strumming and acoustic, which is great. Sure. It's like they're like different muscles, you know. Like if you didn't use the other muscle it atrophies. That totally makes sense. I get that feeling. I think sometimes about
1: how many big bands I played in at school and just how fun it is to be in a huge horn section playing big band charts and how you never get to do... I mean, occasionally you'll get a big band gig and it's really exciting when it happens, but you never get to do that in the real world. And as a horn player, it's really, it's a bummer. There's a lot of big bands out here. I would imagine there's some up there. There's some in Portland. I guess if I if I went and made a point of trying to play with more I could but it's a much less common thing than when you know when I was literally doing it every single day just right. getting up and playing second tenor with all these these great musicians. So
0: I mean it's good to be out of your comfort zone. I mean to to book a gig at the Baked Potato and then have to go in there. I mean it's like <laughs> it's sort of like if you remember what playing forum was like in sure. school where you're Terrifying. there in front of all your peers and all your teachers and there's just like there's no hiding, you know. No there was. there's fluorescent
1: lights too. Right? I would imagine at the Baked Potato they yeah. don't have fluorescent lights and it's not 11am. <laughs> so right.
0: at least there's not... <laughs> although I'd rather I'd rather play at 11 am than pm but i'm weird i guess like
1: that's that. true i'm kind of the same way now that <laughs> now that we're both old farts
0: yeah so i mean it keeps you on your toes you know i feel like there's there's something really good about that yeah know? no no i think
1: it, and it expresses itself i'm sure in in your day-to-day playing in ways that you can't even fully you know internalize right it just it's always there yeah. it's just part of your musical self
0: yeah and it's funny because i people will show up that i i wouldn't think would. You know, I wouldn't think I would see there, and then they're really into it, and and it actually and one kind of helps the other. You sure, know, sure,
1: sure that too. Yeah, it's kind of kind of mixes things together. <laughs> Nice man, this has been super fun. Um, I, I always ask people who come on the show to recommend some music that listeners might enjoy, and uh, I think you've you've got some things to recommend. So yeah, what are your what are your three picks for listeners to check out?
0: So one of the things I've been uh, checking out lately, I uh, picked up this instrument from West Africa called the ngoni. Okay. Again, this is how I ended up with all these guitars. is people go, oh, do you have one of these things? And I go, um, let me let me see if I can find one and figure it out. So in my uh, travels down the internet rabbit hole, I found um, this guy out of West Africa, Quiate nice. And he's, he's like a virtuoso on this instrument. And there's a, pretty much every, everything is great, but there's a record called Segu Blue. So have you been just learning stuff off of that? So I just kind of made like a playlist, and well, okay, well, what are they doing, and what's, you know, it's like learning a new language, really. Yeah, it really is. um, Yeah, so then I I just kind of went down that rabbit hole of just like constantly listening to this stuff. It's really cool, and it's it's also refreshing because, you know, mostly I'm listening to the radio or. So this instrument, it's called the nagoni what's the is that is it
1: a differently tuned instrument, so you have to kind of adjust the way that you're playing?
0: most of them only have they'll have two strings that you can fret okay. there's not even frets, but you can change the pitch and okay. then two drone strings, although oh, he okay. has like a seven string one and then there's others that are called the same, but they're more like a harp and so you can get this kind of cascading thing going and then I'll, I think they actually slap. Like it's like a gourd with strings coming out of it. Oh, nice. they will okay. slap the bowl as well for like percussion sound. Kind of a percussive, yeah. right? Percussive element. Nice. All right. What's your next pick? So then um, somebody turned me on to, um, I think they're from Colombia called Meridian Brothers. Hmm. I don't know. And yeah, it's really, really trippy stuff. The record I really like is called Desesperanza. <laughs> just really quirky trippy like kind of sounds like colombian music but then some rootsy bluesy american stuff mm. thrown in with some like i guess you would almost say like like they break the fourth wall and they like the mix becomes an element of the music itself oh interesting okay yeah. that
1: that's something i see in more like movies but not really in yeah. albums so much so that's kind of cool what's your th- what's your third pick
0: yeah and then for my third one just straight up good old fashioned pop music. There's a band we really like called Keen, yeah. which I think they're like huge. They're from the UK. I think they're really big over there. But They're like, really big over there. They were big over here for a minute in the kind of
1: yeah. mid 2000s. I think they had that one song.
0: I guess so. So I just, I'm just dating myself because I didn't like them or I didn't even know of them then. But yeah. then we went to see them like three years ago. But just like every record is really just like one perfectly constructed and produced pop tune like after another after another and for me it's cool because they don't really use guitar at all it's just like these cool like electric piano layers so it's cool to listen to because like it's so easy to listen to guitar music and then the next day I go oh I sound exactly like the thing I was listening to (laughs) like get out of there right right
1: right (laughs) you can kind of go for for stuff that that doesn't sound like doesn't sound like you at all what is there a specific keen record you've been listening to
0: um their big one was called Hopes and Fears. That was They had this big single off of that, but then um, they're all good. I picked Strangeland for the purposes of our interview here today.
1: Well, nice, man. Andrew Sinowek, this has been a lot of fun. It's been nice catching up and, and just cool to chat with you for the show. So thanks so much for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: And that'll do it for my chat with session guitarist Andrew Sinewik. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to come on. He really is a pretty busy dude, and it's cool that he freed up the time to chat with me. If you'd like to know more about Andrew, I've put links to a bunch of his work down in the show notes. There's this cool video that I mentioned that you can watch, and he's also got a playlist of a whole bunch of artists that he's collaborated with, and it's sort of humorously diverse and speaks to his versatility. Also, to shout this out, that performance of Guy Lacour's Etude No. 4 was by David Hernando Vitoris on the alto sax. Beautiful playing from David. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, I really like these interview episodes. I'm going to be doing some other pretty cool ones here in year four. And as always, if you'd like to support me making this show, you can do that on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash strong songs. And if you sign up at the quarter note tier or higher, you get bonus episodes of the show. The most recent one is actually a follow up to my recent Beatles covers episode with a bunch more Beatles covers. So there's a lot of Beatles covers that I didn't get to fit into the main episode that I got to talk a little bit about. On that bonus episode. So, yeah, patreoncom strong songs if you want to support me making the show and maybe get some bonus stuff. As always, store, social links, all kinds of stuff down in the show notes, so check that out. Shoot me an email if you want it, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com, and I'll see you all in two weeks for more strong songs.